0: Welcome to the Connect Church podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc.
1: Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine.
0: I'd love for you to join me
1: in Revelation chapter 2. Begin reading in verse 8.
0: If you have been keeping up with Connect 20 over the last week, every, every week the Bible reading there sets us up for the next Sunday, so as you work through those passages uh, each day and hearing what the Spirit says, you're prepared for today to hear what the Spirit says to the church Revelation 2, verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Lord, we just pray for wisdom today. We pray for understanding. Uh, We ask that your Spirit, would be our teacher and our guide as we speak of a very relevant message from the founder of the church and the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and what he may be saying to us today. Lord, not let us only be um, understanding, but I I pray that we would learn how to apply the truths in a day that's desperate to hear them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm not going to do much in catch up other than to say that uh, this book written by the Apostle John while he is exiled for his faith on the island of Patmos just out in the Aegean Sea. Uh, and, and this is a, a the, the book of Revelation is a, is a letter written to seven churches and they are uh, kind of in a circle there, just off the uh, the coast, the western coast of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. This whole area in, in like the time of Abraham or or you know such Moses in those days, the Old Testament days, was the uh, the land of the Hittites, uh, and so they've you know become under Greece and now Rome and a very heavily industrialized uh, area. And this specific book, I mean letter, uh, John has already said in chapter one, he had seven stars in his, in his right hand and uh, the stars were the angels and the angels are the messengers and the messengers uh, are the ones who deliver the message simply. The, the Greek word is angelos. It doesn't necessarily have to be the angel. It is a messenger, someone who is delivering the message. And so in this context, It seems to be that it's most likely the pastor that is receiving the responsibility of the letter to deliver it as the speaker to the church. So what I want to do is I want to go back through this very brief letter because there is a ton of stuff in there that I believe is relevant for us as well. To the angel of the church at Smyrna, write... So let's first talk about some of the cultural things that are going on. This is uh, what we would call context. It's not only important for us to know what we think about what John is writing through the inspiration uh, of inspiration the Spirit, but it's very important to know what the hearers are understanding because I believe there is both a then and now understanding of all of these books. There are Here's why Smyrna was selected to receive the letter, but... Why is it preserved for the modern-day church uh, for us? Well, Smyrna was a very large, like I said earlier, very heavily industrialized. It was beautiful, very rich. A lot of people had a lot of money that lived in Smyrna, and they were very, very proud of it. In fact, they claimed uh, themselves to be the glory of all of Asia. That was kind of their, their tagline, the glory of Asia. It rivaled Ephesus. In fact, it's just set just northwest of Ephesus out on the coast. And uh, it was a very, very major uh, trade city. Everything from the whole river valley would run through Smyrna on its way to the coast to go to the rest of the world. And so in a lot of ways, Smyrna would receive the opportunity at a lot of things before the rest of the world did. And so the interesting thing about what John writes here that Jesus sees is that in, in 580 BC, Smyrna was completely sacked, completely destroyed as a major city. And it was brought to just become kind of little villages around uh, and, and, and practically decimated politically. But uh, none other than Alexander the Great in the mid uh, 300s decided that it needed to be rebuilt. And so he put effort toward rebuilding Smyrna, and they took that as a badge of honor. And so Smyrna became what it became, and it was completed in 290 BC. I know you don't care about this, but when Well, maybe you don't care about it. But when Jesus talks about dead things becoming alive again, this is the whole reason that he's writing that. Smyrna was dead. They understand resurrection because they are incredibly proud that they were able to come back out of death, even for generation. Smyrna was one of the very first cities in the world that was deeply committed to idolatry by way of uh, uh, emperor worship. Uh, One of the famous streets in Smyrna, it wasn't a wonder of the world, but none of them were wonders of the world, but collectively outshined every other place on the world they, it was called the golden street and on the golden street was temple after temple after temple after temple to multiple gods in fact they were a very uh, international sort of city because in these days you would expect them to have well and they did a temple to apollo and Ascipulus and to uh, several others aphrodite was another goddess that was that was worshiped there and there were uh, many others uh, that were, that, that were worshipped there. But one of them was uh, uh, Sibylle. And she was actually a Phrygian goddess, the only goddess, the mother god of all creation. She gave birth to everything that lives. And they had accepted her, because that's kind of the region they were in, also as a god. And Greece tolerated it. Now that it's under Roman rule, Roman is tolerating it as well, bringing her into the pantheon of all other gods, which only implies that Smyrna was an incredibly influential city and was allowed to get away with some things that nobody else was able to get away with. Why? Because they were so influential and they had so much money, and because of the trade route. So, this whole line of temple, if you wanted to worship just about anyone, you could go to Smyrna. To worship. Now, when you, think of, if you start thinking about this, it didn't take long by this time when John is writing that these Greek gods and now Roman gods and goddesses were kind of falling out of fashion quite a bit. And if you remember, we talked about this. Smyrna was the, there was a, there was a contest. Eleven cities fought for the ability to build the first temple. To Rome, not to a god or a goddess, to Rome, to the political system. It was a temple strictly for Rome, and, uh, and they won. They won the contest, and they were able to build it. So if you wanted to pay homage to Rome, you went to Smyrna to do it. Uh, and it's, it's incredible because whenever they, they begin to slip from worshiping their nationality to worshiping the emperor, and by this time, that was built during the days of Tiberius. But now, when John is writing, Domitian is the emperor, and he was demanded, demanding to be known as the Lord God. And so in this place that was dedicated to Rome had crept in the, the worship to previous emperors, and now they're actually worshiping the emperor himself. Now, that's how the slippery slope begins. When you And I, again, I'm, I'm just... When you start worshiping politics and you start start worshiping countries and you start worshiping nationalities and patriotism, it is a slippery slope away from the Lord, I'm telling you. I think we're experiencing that in our country, by the way. I'm just going to say that. We're experiencing that right this very moment. We are worshiping Rome. Uh, Even Christians are worshiping Rome. And uh, that's all I'm going to say today. We'll talk about that more a little bit. Uh, i've got to stay on script because I'll get way off today uh, and i just can't I just can't afford that today so So they have truly slipped into this worshiping their their nation and their their government and their leaders. What they're requiring now because of the arrogance of Domitian was that everyone had to go to this temple and they had to go over to their uh, incense bowl, and they had to take a pinch of incense. They would take that incense and then they would sprinkle it into the fire and pay, and they would have to say, Caesar is Lord. If you did this, you do not have to believe it. You don't have to believe that he's Lord. You just have to say that he's Lord. When you finish, they will take a certificate and they will write your name on the certificate and they will give it back to you and they will say, uh, you've paid your, your duty. So if you ever get in trouble throughout the year, you can show them that certificate and show them that you were loyal to Rome. Now, it's, it's rather a, a, a slippery slope, this, this pinch of incense. So worship of Caesar became very compulsory, demanded. And uh, everyone, including non-believers, would have to, by non-believers, I mean Christians, have would have to do it. Christians were, of course, absolutely opposed to ever saying Caesar is Lord. There is no Lord but Jesus himself. And so Christians in those days were it was obvious if you were a Christian. You were 100% on the outside. You did not have your certificate. When you went to buy something, you didn't have your certificate. When you went to pay your house payment, you didn't have your certificate. Rome would offer you no indulgences whatsoever. And so most of these people were unemployable and they could not even buy bread. They were on the street, their property, their possessions, and sometimes even their family was taken away from them, and they were 100% destitute. It's very important to see that very, very, very slippery slope, not over the course of a year or two, over the course of a 100 years, they had gotten into this place. And anyone who didn't agree lost their voice. One of the pastors of Smyrna, we talked about him last week, was Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John himself. Uh, John was, uh, you know, quite a bit older uh, than Polycarp. Polycarp was born in the mid-60s, not 1960s. And, you know, it's funny, I just feel like Polycarp was born in the 60s, 64 in fact. And so uh, John had quite a ministry. John had already moved to Ephesus uh, and was... Uh, an elder there in the church that Paul had founded. And so in that general area, Paul had a great deal of significance. Polycarp come under the the sound of the gospel, gave his life to the Lord, and, and then gave himself to John. And John began to teach him. In AD 95, John moves from Ephesus to Patmos for a period of time, and then wrote the book of Revelation, came back to Ephesus, and he had already appointed Polycarp as the bishop to Smyrna. So I'm just saying that Smyrna had a pretty good pastor that had been taught by John himself. And so Polycarp is pastoring while John is exiled on on Patmos. I don't think that's why uh, John said Smyrna was rich, why Jesus said Smyrna was rich, but boy, they had a pretty good pastor in in Polycarp. I don't know if that's his real name or not. We don't know a whole lot about him, where he's truly from, somewhere in Asia Minor, Uh, but his name means much fruit. I don't think that it's a nickname, but what an interesting name for a man like Polycarp for his name to truly mean much fruit. So let's look at verse, the second part of verse 8. Jesus describes himself to, to the church, and he says, if you go over to chapter 1, verses 11, and then again in 17 and 18, Jesus calls himself the first and the last. And here he introduces himself to the church at Smyrna in a way that he has already introduced himself to all of, all of the churches the first and the last. In fact, there are several places in the Old Testament. We talked about the, percent, the high percentage of the book of Revelation that goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, this is one of those. In Isaiah 41, verse 4, it says, Who has performed and done it, calling the generation from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first And the last, I am he. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then again in Isaiah 48, 12, it says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, the first, and I am also the last. So Jesus goes on to be just a little bit more specific. Being called the last implies sort of past tense. But Jesus clarifies here in verse 18, who was dead and came to life. Uh, Jesus chooses part of his introduction again to remind Smyrna of a few things that they're going to really need to know. He knows what it's like to be dead, and he knows what it's like to be brought back to life. And he wants these Christians who are facing peril in their lives to remember that they serve a risen Lord. When they go off into death, they're not following one who is simply encouraging them. They are following one who has already experienced it. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to follow someone, I want to know that they've already got some experiential knowledge. Not just words of flattery or encouragement. And so what Jesus is telling them here is you're getting ready to go into death, but I've already been there and you're going to be okay. What a great sense of encouragement that he gives them here. And also I wanted to bring up because in chapter one, verse 18, it's quite literally, it speaks of continuity. I am living. And this is in chapter one, I am the living one. And it's it's like this con, uh, continuous action of of living even though i went through death i i've never not lived is what jesus is saying but here in chapter in 2 the it's written in a different tense here it's aorist tense which which puts all of the emphasis on the the happenings or the 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 actions of it what he is saying is i became dead but i sprang to life and so it's it's Again, it's an interesting turn of phrase because what Jesus is doing is telling these folks who are about to be persecuted unto death and he's telling them, I've experienced life but there's more important things than living. I mean, more important things than, than death. He, he took and sprang back uh, to life. So he's kind of speaking on this, uh, this, this resume. Verse nine, I know your works, your tribulation, that, uh, that word, I know this isn't a Bible study, but that word is thalipsis. There could be a number of words that's used here, but, but John uses, and by, again, Jesus uses, thalipsis, which is singular. It's not plural, and it means serious trouble. This is life and death. This is the, the heaviest weight that a person could possibly carry. This isn't a problem. This isn't a series of problems. This isn't a headache or I can't pay my electric bill. This is life or death. And I know that you are overcome And poverty. There are two words that, that Jesus could have used here. Uh, one of them means without much. I mean, you're You're hungry. And you don't have a place to put your head down. There's no pillow for you. There's no comfort for you. And then there's this word, tokus. It's, it means that there isn't a morsel. There is not one thing. You couldn't be more destitute than tokus. But that's what Jesus says. But you are rich. And I know you may not get hung up on some of the words uh, like I do. I mean, I know with the language like Greek, it, it could be super, super detailed out. And I believe that, that Jesus is the perfect communicator. He uses the word that he wants. And I'm just convinced that when he speaks, he speaks with authority. And the picture that he is painting really, truly matters. And So he is painting a really, really sad picture of, of these folks. But he also says, but you are rich And then he says, I know. This is the second time he said, I know. I know your works and I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not. It implies Jesus sees everything, but it also implies that they are not alone. Listen, Jesus had works in his life and how difficult it was to... To live the life that Jesus lived. And the tribulation, the anxiety that was there for Jesus, and, and the, 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 the ability to be overcome. He didn't have a home. He doesn't have any place that he could count on. This tribulation, the weight of glory, and the the, the persecution of betrayal and all of the things that Jesus went through, he's reminding them: I know, I've experienced it. You're, you're not alone. I'm not just your coach. I've I've been there, I've experienced it too. And this this poverty. Christians knew poverty because they had been robbed, they'd been fired from jobs, they'd lost their property and possessions, and not because they were bad workers or because they couldn't keep up, it's because they were Christians. Christianity wasn't legal. So it made it really easy for Jews and for pagans just to come in and to strip them of every advantage. In fact, most Jews that lived in Smyrna at the time, heavy Jewish population there, even though it was Roman, uh, they, they saw it as their obligation, as their duty to destroy Christians. According to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, the early Christians, what Hebrews says, joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. And I got a lot that I want to try to get across today, but one of the things that I want us to understand is as we process through passages like this, is the the fact of God using devastation in our lives to purify us. Uh, And and I just I
1: just I struggle when I think about our readiness when I I, I survey what we argue over and what we fight over. Listen to this. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods.
0: I mean, I, I don't even know Christians that would joyfully endure the plundering of their goods. We don't even know that. We, we don't know anything but digging on our heels and ain't nobody going to take anything from
1: me. That's what we know. That's how we live. That's what we argue over. Ain't nobody going to take my rights away from me.
0: Listen to this. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have an enduring possession One that cannot be taken. Why would you be satisfied with possessions that could be taken, rights that can be taken, when you have an enduring one that can't be stripped? Why would we invest so much of our life for here? It could be gone in a second. We argue over
1: that thing, whatever it may be. It's different for all of us. Jesus gets pretty clear here, just like he was in his own life. He says, I know the blasphemy
0: of those who say they are Jews and are not. There was this large community of devoted and they were fierce Jews. I mean, they were by the book Jews in Smyrna. They were Jews by nationality. I mean, they had Abraham's blood in them. But here Jesus tells us that a true Jew, very important, a true Jew trusts God and believes in Jesus Christ. Judaism produces Jesus followers. Christianity isn't something that come up with the life of Jesus. Christianity has existed for 6,000 years. It's the continuation of the promises of God. It's not some new teaching. And Jews who got stuck with Jesus are not Jews. they are synagogues of Satan. That seems strong. Here's what Jesus is ultimately saying. These people who think they're religious, they're hypocrites. You either worship Jesus Christ or you're a Satan worshiper. Those are not my words. That's not my opinion. That's what Jesus himself
1: said. Jesus is Lord or you're worshiping demons. Still true. No other way. There's no other plan. Jesus is worth dying for. Or we're living in idolatry. Oh, I mean, you know, not Apollo and Ascipulus and Aphrodite and Sibylle. No, what? That's
0: silly. We, but I will tell you, the product of those gods, the things that they manifest and the power, the demonic power that they possess and they give away, that's just as, just as much true as it's ever been. The gods of malice, the gods of hatred, the gods of fornication and adultery, the darkness and the, and the blinders that these, that these powers have over even Christians that can be lured to sleep. While we're at war, Jesus is clear. You either worship him or you're worshiping Satan. Verse 9. You keep reading, you see what, what others think about you, it's, and sometimes even what you think about yourself, and it just doesn't matter. I mean, they're, they're destitute living in the street because Jesus is the Lord of their life. And Jesus says, But you're rich. Jesus doesn't measure the things that we measure.
1: Jesus doesn't measure comfort the way we measure comfort. According to what truly
0: matters, they're rich. According to what really counts, they're rich. They are exhausted, they are hungry, they are defeated, but Jesus says you are rich. What this says is, this is... uh, This is Jesus' remember what really matters speech. The one who defeated death and walked this path before gets to give the perspective. I've been here before. Know this. There is a glory set before you. And that glory that is before you is a whole lot better than whatever the glory is that you're settling for here. So give yourself to that glory instead of this
1: glory. That's what Jesus is saying. Smyrna was the poorest, but it's the purest. It's the purest. Did you know, there's not one negative word. It's the only letter to a church
0: in the book of Revelation that doesn't have a correction in it.
1: The poorest church is the purest church because every decision they make has to matter. I mean,
0: you either have faith or you don't. There's no no balancing different sides of our lives. I'm not sure that there's a correlation to poor and pure, but I am saying sometimes God uses tribulation to purify us. He uses difficulty to purify us, to draw a different line than the lines that we've drawn about what is Christianity and what is not Christianity. I'll tell you this, in Smyrna, their income didn't give them a false hope. It didn't provide distractions for them. They didn't have a safety net. And I think a lot of times, man, our comfort provides such a security for us. It, we really do believe that our income provides for us. There's something inside of us that tells us that, you know, we, we can make it a while on our own. And there is no reminder
1: like poverty, than that Jesus is what we need. At any rate, our estimation of ourselves is far less important
0: than Jesus' estimation of us. He said, don't fear those things which you're about to suffer. Listen, I don't know about you, but there is not a world where I want to receive that encouragement. (laughs) <laughs> right? I mean, think about it. He's just pretty much told you you, won't want to swap, you, you would want to swap lives with anyone. But you're about to suffer. <laughs> well, what do you think I've been doing? Well, <laughs> no, the suffering that's coming is not nearly as good as the suffering you've already endured. It's about to get a lot worse. We're starving and homeless. I know, and it's about to get worse.
1: The devil's about to throw some of you in prison so that you can be tested and you'll have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Aren't you glad this was written to Smyrna? It's written to them. It's written for us. Do not fear, literally translated, stop being afraid.
0: I love to stop being afraid because by the time you tell somebody not to be afraid, they're already afraid.
1: Jesus says you can stop it. In the spirit, they get to think again. Take those thoughts captive.
0: This is why Jesus has already been setting them up with the first and the last, the dead and alive, the I knows and the victory and the overcoming. I mean, he's really pouring a lot of encouragement on them. Think on these things.
1: But Lord, you are sovereign. If Satan's going to throw us into prison, why don't you stop him? I
0: mean, you say rebuke the devil and he will flee from you. Well, I want to rebuke in Jesus' name. I
1: don't want to go to prison. Well, then how are you going to prove it? How are you going to How are you going to be tested? How are you going to
0: serve as a testimony to a world? And I know your comfort in this little few decades that you get to live here is really, really important to you. But I want you to think about the people that need the witness of your faithfulness or they're going to spend eternity in hell. What is your comfort worth for the two-thirds of the world's population that's never heard the gospel once? Is your comfort worth their eternity? Now it's about to get worse.
1: I'm going to allow Satan to destroy you. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I smell a petition coming on if we were
0: the church at Smyrna. Lord, we've signed, we've taken a poll. We don't want that. I think we're going to go to the church at Ephesus starting next Sunday. Heard they got a new preacher. Uh, Sometimes we think about Christians who, you know, you think about Afghani Christians right now or Iranian Christians right now, and we think, man, those guys are superheroes. All of those Chinese Christians that for decades have been working underground, and say, man, those guys who have spent, you know, years. They talk about where did you go to seminary. They really mean which prison did you go to and how long did you go through seminary means how long did you serve time for your faith. If you didn't serve time in prison, you can't pastor. You improve it. Anybody can say they're a Christian. You got to prove it. We think, man, those guys are superheroes. We should write books about them. They're not. They're afraid. They're terrified. They're terrified. That's why Jesus said, hey, it's about to get worse. Don't be afraid. I know you're going to be. Ain't nobody in their right mind that wouldn't be afraid. What do you think Paul, every time he would go to a church, would say, hey, pray that I would have boldness because fear sits in. That's why.
1: Nobody gets encouraged when they hear an axe grinding. That's why your brothers and sisters all around the world
0: right now need us to pray for them, that they would have boldness and be able to stand. Fear makes us do things we don't want to do. It's an incredible motivator. And if you want to live in fear long enough, you'll do things you regret. Listen, mark my words. If you live in fear long enough, you'll do things you regret. The problem is we don't identify fear for what it is. That fear of missing out, that fear of getting left behind, that fear of not having enough makes us do things that we wouldn't want to do. That fear of not fitting in and and having the right friends, the friends that we want, all of those things make us compromise parts of our life that we wouldn't compromise. There's lots of fear out there. And I'm telling you, fear will make you do things that you will regret, that you don't want to do. That's why it's so important to that that what well, what Paul says in, or John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And that's John is trying to say the same thing here, or Jesus is saying the same thing here, is that perfect love casts out fear. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, and we won't succumb to fear.
1: There are things that they were about to suffer, and Jesus wanted them to be ready for those things. But
0: the Jesus that we serve would protect us from those things. And I think reading passages like this is like, wait a minute, do you mean Jesus, who could have stopped this, doesn't? Jesus that could have stopped Afghani Christians from running up into the caves to save their lives didn't stop it. Scratch your head and say, I don't understand why a sovereign God would permit a vile Satan to have any influence at all. In fact, I thought that's why we came to Jesus is so Satan wouldn't have any influence on our lives anymore. But God is reminding them that while he still allows Satan to have influence, he is ultimately in control of what happens. God is permitting Satan to test them. And without testing them, there could be no glory and I want you
1: to receive that crown of life. It's necessary. Persecution's necessary. What you will lose. And I'm, tell, I'm, I'm really,
0: I don't want to overemphasize this right now, but I really feel like the Lord
1: is shifting gears for our future. And what we're going to need to be ready for. I don't think we're ready. I don't think we're ready for what's coming. I think we're weak. I think we're comfortable.
0: I think we're right fighting the wrong fights. And I feel like there is a shift in the atmosphere that the Lord is trying to prepare us for what is
1: coming. And we can pray against it. Of course, we would but I want to pray that we're ready for it, for what is coming. What you will lose is worth what you will gain. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison. Uh, It could be those that
0: are the Jews that are pretenders, the synagogue of Satan. That's where the persecution is going to come from, but you're going to be imprisoned for a specific period of time to tribulation, 10 days. Uh, being thrown in prison was inc- uh, severe persecution. I don't want you to think about like modern prison. Uh, in that day, prison was never used to rehabilitate and, and rarely was it used to punish. Uh, it, it was used to await execution. So if you were in prison, you were dying. That was the next step. And it seems to be the point that Jesus is trying to prepare them for. You will have tribulation 10 days, and he doesn't say, and then you'll be released. But it's a, it's a time of testing. Sometimes the testing gets us out of trouble. Sometimes the testing gets us out of trouble, if you, if you know what I mean. In fact, I think that this is a throwback to Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. 12 I'm gonna read that uh, this is where Daniel does not want to defile himself with the king's meat he says test your servants for anybody want to guess how many days 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed and deal with your servants according to what you see so we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, if you set down the 10 days between Daniel's 10 days and the 10 days at the church of
1: Smyrna, I want Daniel's 10 days of testing. But the testing produces purity. God is letting them know he had a purpose in their suffering. And he ultimately is
0: allowing it. And if he is allowing it, then he is in there with you. Just like he was with the three Hebrew children, the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace. There's a fourth man in the fire. Just like Daniel was in the lion's den. Listen, you're not going to go through something that Jesus was not walking out with you. You you cannot be in persecution and Jesus not be there with you. He promises it. So remember, I'm going to be there with you. You're about to go into prison for 10 days. I'm with you always, even to the end. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." See, testing purifies us. Here's another, another shift in, and Paul says in Romans chapter eight verse 17, "And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. To make us true witnesses of him, you see, tribulation and persecution, that is necessary. For us as humans to understand the sufferings of Christ and to take part in the glory of Jesus Christ. And if there is no suffering, there
1: is no Christ-likeness. If there's no suffering, there's no purifying. What, What Jesus has given the church of
0: Smyrna is a rare precious jewel to them. It's a guarantee of eternal life. So which do you want? Do you want the guarantee of eternal life that is to come or do you want to live comfortable here for a few
1: more decades? The blood of the martyrs have always been a seed for the church. God is allowing this attack. I'm glad I'm not Job. Job. That's rough.
0: But that was the Lord's idea. Looks at Satan and says, if you considered my servant Job. You remember when Jesus was with Peter, Peter was like, I'm going to die. I'll kill everybody. Nobody's going to take you. And
1: Jesus said, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. was God allowing the attack. I mean, you think Satan's asking to sift Peter like wheat.
0: Satan's asking, right? Satan's asking, which implies someone has authority over him. What's God's response? Well, Satan was, uh, sifted Peter like wheat. His answer was yes. Sh- 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 sift him. He needs to be sifted. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. It's easy. It, Honestly, it's impossible. But sift him. Because he needs to learn what it's like so that he can stand one day with me. He he needs to be purified. He needs to understand Christ's likeness. God is using them as the seed for the gospel and the breaking of strongholds. To be used in this way is on the other side of, of kingdom, on the other side of that veil. It's an incredible blessing. To suffer for Christ, boy, it's not the way we learn it, is it? I mean, we say anytime we get like an advancement in life, or we get a new house, or we get a new vehicle, or we whatever whatever advancement we have, we say, "Boy, I'm sure blessed. I'm so blessed." Now, probably not. The blessing comes from being purified and to be able to glorify Jesus Christ in His suffering. That's where the blessing comes. That's how you know you're blessed is your life gets to be a testimony to God's
1: faithfulness in the fire. It's the promise of a crown. There's two crowns, diadem. Some of our old hymns talk about that diadem.
0: That's a king's crown. That's a crown of authority, but there's another one. Stephanos, which is like a, a victor's, victor's crown. It's like if you won, that's the trophy. You get a crown on your head. And you think of like, uh, especially in Smyrna, on the gold street here that they, that they would worship on, if you went to worship at any of these temples, you, you'd wear uh, wreaths that would represent your a victor uh, as you would go to the temple. And what Jesus is promising, those who persevere unto death, He'll give them a victor's crown. They'll get to share in the crown that he won at, on the cross. He's saying, you are, listen, I know that you're about to die for your faith, but your death will give birth to a movement.
1: And when you die, you'll be my winners. And I'll give you a crown that doesn't perish. It's interesting, and again, nothing to me is... Um, what's it called when... Well, let me think. Anyway, uh, Jesus says that I, I will give you... Look at what he says in... uh verse, is it? Verse 10, I've got the wrong glasses on. Be faithful unto
0: death and I'll give you the crown of life. In, uh, in Greek, it says, be faithful unto death. There's no article there in front of death, but there is an article in front of life. And he says, I will give you the crown of the life.
1: I think it's important. Death is one thing, but there's only one, the life.
0: In verse 11, there's this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Of the churches and this is good encouragement for anyone who listens and can hear the spirit and it's good for us to hear that today in the mid-second century polycarp was an old man uh, there was severe persecution that was beginning to break out in asia minor specifically in smyrna because of the influence of men like Polycarp, the church was expanding, even in the midst of extreme difficulty, and uh, Rome was beginning to take note, and they were wanting to start shutting down these churches that were continuing to grow and to be populated, and so that was, that was actually coming upon them, and Polycarp had found out that his name had been listed as someone who was about to be arrested. And so all of the congregation told Polycarp that he needed to get out of town to save his life. And in those days, you didn't just run headlong into martyrdom like people do today, uh, but you know, you try to protect yourself, but if it's what God wants, then it's what God wants. And so Polycarp actually left town for a little while and he went out and lived with some friends at an old farmhouse and hid out. Well, he had been out there for some time and he had a vision from the Lord while he was asleep that his pillow caught on fire. And it woke him up and it startled him and the word of the Lord came to Polycarp and what he was saying is, Polycarp, you are going to be burned at the stake for your faith. Polycarp woke up the next morning and was a little bit more resolute of what needed to take place. He knew there was going to be no escape from this. At the same time of his vision they had uh, ordered a search party for Polycarp and they sent out uh, men to to try to find him and they found two of Polycarp's disciples and they tortured them just short of death and they finally told them where Polycarp was and they went to arrest Polycarp. He was sitting at the table waiting for them. Well, when they all walked in, they demanded that he, you know, go with them. This 86-year-old man, (laughs) really little, and they said, you're coming with us. And when they saw him, they like, wait a minute, this is, this is just an old dude. Why do we have like a battalion of soldiers here? Polycarp said, come on in. I've prepared you a meal. There's food. There's drink. And so they were hungry, and they did. And they sat around, and Polycarp said, they said, because of your generosity and hospitality, we'll grant you one request. He said, I'd like to have an hour in prayer. And they said, we'll give you an hour to pray. <clears throat> Polycarp prayed for two out loud, and the soldiers could hear him praying, and they came under extreme conviction, and they started to feel really bad about what they were about to do. But they took Polycarp, and they marched him on back to Smyrna, and when they got back there, they told him, take a pinch of incense, Caesar is Lord, and you're free to go. Polycarp wouldn't do it. Finally, he said, no, thank you, verbally. Well, the chief magistrate was so upset they knocked Polycarp off out of the the chariot and he was bruised and battered. 86-year-old man picks himself up and walks all the way to city center on his own. Nobody forcing him. When he got there, there had already been 10 other men in the arena that day. And they brought these men and they said, if you will renounce Jesus, you can live. And there was this one guy who was such an arrogant Christian. I mean, he's like in everybody's face all the time. And when he saw the lions, he renounced his loyalty to Jesus Christ. But there was another man there that day too, who very proudly clung to Jesus and was absolutely ripped to shreds in front of this crowd of people who were cheering on the death to all of these atheists. All these Christians. And they looked at Polycarp and they said, Polycarp, if you will say away with the atheists, you know, the pinch and the incense is over. That's not here anymore. If you'll just say away with the atheists, you can be free. Polycarp, it says that he looked to the crowds and said away with all the atheists. And they were so irate at Polycarp. And the crowd was cheering these big hungry lions, but they had already been put up and put away. And so they recognized the only way to kill Polycarp now is to burn him at the stake. So they brought the pole out. They set it in the center. They chained Polycarp to the pole and they lit it on fire. And while the fire is beginning, they said that there was a voice that many people heard it that day. It's written that they heard a voice from heaven say, Polycarp, play the man. And he stood there and they said, if you'll you'll renounce Christ, you'll live. Polycarp said, for 86 years, he has walked with me. I won't renounce him now. And they lit him on fire. But there was a barrier between Polycarp and the fire. The fire wouldn't catch Polycarp. And so they would hotter and hotter and bigger and bigger and he just stood there in the midst of a circle of flame right around his feet. And they finally got tired of wasting time, took a spear into his side, out came blood, put out all the fire. Again, miraculously, many, even non-Christian witnesses said that there was a dove that flew out of the fire into the heavens. Incredible time of persecution. You think that This, you know, when the angel of the church of Smyrna, when he received that letter, it was Polycarp that was reading this to his church that he loved. And he said, get ready, it's coming. It already took Brother John and it's coming for us too. And we need to be prepared. We need to be men and women of Jesus Christ instead of our culture. And so what I would want to do this morning is just to encourage us I know that for most of our lives, it has seemed like that kind of persecution, man, that belongs to another group of people in another part of the world. But I believe that the church letter to the church at Smyrna is written for us. I believe it's coming. And I believe we're going to be afraid. So afraid that I think many will renounce. They're going to dig in on the wrong issues. But I, I want to see us I'm not responsible for the world But I want to see us hear the Lord say, play the man, be ready, be strong, be vigilant. It won't last long, only 10 days. I don't know what 10 days means, but it's got a definitive amount of time attached to it. The Lord is in ultimate control and it's purifying and it creates christ likeness. And there is a crown of life that comes with it, not just life, crown of the life for all eternity. We should
1: gladly lay down our lives for eternal glory. The only way through it is persecution. Oh yeah, I know, we, get, we, have, we go through various
0: trials. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about persecution because of our faith. And so this morning, I want us to take a real inventory of not how blessed we are, but of how firmly we're standing, rooted and grounded in the life of Jesus Christ. How committed we are to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How faithful we are in the midst of difficulty and persecution. You know what? I have learned that over the last year and a half, we are not ready. We've allowed such things to divide us from each other. It's embarrassing. And we think that we're going to stand proudly when true persecution comes. No, we're going to be
1: cashed out by the time that real persecution comes. It's time for us to love one another and to
0: drop down every other thing that would divide us. We need to be unified together in every way because we're going to need the strength from each other one day. Very soon, I suspect. And we're going to wish that things like masks and race and vaccines and stimulus checks are not the things that should be dividing us. We need to love one another. We need to be generous to one another. We need to esteem one another. We need to forgive one another. We need to build one another up.
1: Or we're going to fall and we will not be purified. Or we may win. The crown of this life, but there's a better crown.
0: There's a better crown and there's a better way. And I want us to be ready for it. But first, we may have to persecute ourselves just a little bit. Paul says, beat his flesh into submission. There may be some things that we need to do to ourselves to prepare us. There may be some things that we need to do to reorganize and to reprioritize the
1: way we live so that the, when the things that the world values are stripped from us, we're not dependent on it. We also may need to learn how to make sure that we're encouraging
0: one another to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ because I'm convinced that Satan
1: is going to be loosed for a little while and I think he's coming. I think he's coming to persecute us but
0: it's going to be for a short time and what we gain will be worth what we lose. Let's pray.
1: Lord, I just ask that you would Receive this message as an introduction. Lord, I pray that you would do with it as you see fit. I pray
0: that you would help our minds to begin to shift. We've grown so comfortable.
1: So easy. Doing church. Going to church. Even reading the word. Talking about Jesus
0: pray that we would start really defining what it looks like to live the Christ life in this world right now. That wherever we go, we are 100% devoted to Jesus is Lord and there are no others. That we would not be tempted to take a mark from the world, that we would take the value system of the world and even consider that in play. And when the arenas are shouting for us to give, to give in, Lord, I pray that we would stand firm. I, may, God, I pray that you would help us to have discernment, to know what's worth fighting for and what's worth laying down and stepping over. I thank you for men like Polycarp, who's not mentioned in scripture, but he is a first generation fruit of what the, church, the letter to the church at Smyrna produces. And there are men and women all around the world. There, you know, Lord, you are with them right now. And we lift them up to you, and we pray that you would give them boldness. I know right now that there are literally millions of brothers and sisters that are sh- trembling over fear, that are battling spiritual powers that we can't even fathom here. And I pray that one day their testimony will give us courage. If we live that long, and we pray, Lord, even so, come Lord Jesus. We're torn in praying that because when we pray that, there are a lot of people right now who don't know you. And we sentence all of them to the lake of fire. So Lord, let that be our motivation, that while you tarry your coming, may we play the man. May we be a man after your own heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanna ask you to stand with me. I wanna, Chris, if you'll just play. I want us to end our time together today just in private prayer. I want us just to maybe there are some things that we need to repent over. Maybe there are some distractions in our life that we haven't recognized maybe until now. Maybe there's some hang-ups, some regrets. And and I have no doubt that there may be some here that may not be quite so ready to be able to see persecution in our future. And I don't know when. But the arrogance to think that we'll avoid it. <laughs> you know, preparation for difficulty doesn't just appear... When you need it, there there is obviously a preparation of it, and I really believe right now maybe we need to repent of some things, maybe maybe uh, time with the Lord, maybe uh, preparing ourselves for Bible memory. Uh, maybe learning how to encourage instead of criticize, learning how to, how to lift up, how to be faithful. There's so many things right now we need to be learning and applying and putting things into our heart and into our character that's producing Christ so that fruit, there can be much fruit. On that day, 2,000 years later, we're talking about, oh, much fruit who gave himself up for Jesus Christ. So, while we are not being persecuted right now, I'd like for us just to pray that God would give us courage and boldness and discernment to prepare so that when that day comes, we will say, 86 years he's been faithful to me. I won't turn my back on him now. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are the first and the last. Thank you that you've already walked the way of death and you have the keys. Thank you that you are the victor. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you have authority. Thank you that it's all your plan. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for eternity. Thank you for the ability to represent you here now. In Jesus' name we pray.
1: Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.